0: Waters, a member of Congress serving California's 43rd Congressional District and the ranking member of the House Committee on Financial Services. Yesterday, Donald Trump had the audacity to call upon people to set aside differences when in reality he has divided Americans in ways no other modern president has done. Donald Trump defined himself in his response to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, when he defended white supremacists and the KKK, even after a young woman protesting against racism was killed by a white supremacist. One speech cannot and does not make Donald Trump presidential. He's not presidential, and he never will be presidential. He claims that he's bringing people together, but make no mistake, he is a dangerous, unprincipled, divisive, and shameful racist. He stokes racial animosity by referring to black NFL players as sons of bitches, and demonizing immigrants from Haiti and Africa. This president, with his vulgarity, and his disrespect for women and people of color is a terrible role model for our children. My remarks today are not merely a response to this president's State of the Union address. They are a warning to the American people, a warning that this president does not deserve to represent us and that he's taken America down the road to isolation and division.
1: Welcome to the weekly review. That was Devo with Smart Patrol slash Mr. DNA. I hadn't heard that song before, and it was playing on the show previously, so I thought I would share that with folks. I always appreciate, not that it's a new song, although I do appreciate hearing music I hadn't heard before, or at least music that I wasn't aware of hearing before. Before that, we heard Maxine Waters speaking truth. Oh, I feel it's beneficial when we have folks telling the truth about what's actually happening instead of so many of the messages that we're getting that are very backwards and very harmful, and I suppose that's how I will open the show today. It's been a, an extremely long week. It's, we're in February now. It's February 2nd, 2018. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Review. This is Roman. We are recording live, broadcasting live at Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco. It's been, it feels like it's been a very long year, and I know I'm not alone in feeling that. So we'll be going over some news stories today, also playing some music, and we also want to hear from you. So if you have questions opinions thoughts I know lots of folks do things you want to get off your chest anything at all please do give us a call we're uncensored here at 415 511 we'd love to hear from you also if you have recommendations for music sometimes I put together playlists ahead of time other times I ask folks for suggestions I've had a lot going on this week so didn't really get a chance to fully put together a playlist I've got some music I'll be playing however I would love to hear recommendations from folks Obviously, it's great to have anti-fascist songs playing, and also anything that makes you feel good and happy and confident and soothes you, we're happy to play songs like that as well here. I've been trying to spend some time off of social media because it's a lot more beneficial for my mental health. I end up missing out on some news stories, however... It can feel good to just take breaks sometimes. And I was in an argument. It didn't even get to the point of being an argument because I was unfriended before it even became an argument. And it's just so unsettling. And what I find to be the most frustrating is that, yes, we are complex human beings with behaviors. And I was pretty much, long story short, I was called a hypocrite because I would not listen to someone who is defending abusive police officers. Now, as a human being, uh, there definitely are behaviors of mine that would fall under the hypocritical category. I think it's almost impossible to not, especially being an American, as uh, someone who has <laughs> at points in my life paid taxes and have it knowing that part of that goes to the military, which I like the exorbitant amount that goes to the military and being opposed to it. I feel like that's hypocritical. I happen to be of Jewish descent and I am not as outspoken against the policies and military of Israel as I could be. I recognize that's hypocritical. There are times in my life when so it's difficult how one is labeled necessarily. However, you know, one can be outspoken about certain issues and then how one is in their interpersonal relationships that might not be quite the same. So recognize some hypocr- hypocrisy in that, especially in my younger years and not treating people as well as I could have. Recognizing hypocrisy there. I think under capitalism, it's extremely difficult to be honest and ethical and kind given the, the, the pressure that many of us are under to survive. And it's not a system that encourages uh, vulnerability. It's not a system that encourages sharing and being cooperative, unfortunately. And that's what I think a lot of us are at our core, is we want to share with each other. We want to be kind and considerate. And unfortunately, to survive, we sometimes have to make really terrible compromises, perhaps work for companies we don't want to work for, to pay the bills, et cetera. And also just take out the violence on one another. I mean, the idea that there's, you know, all violence is state violence and violence that's done to us by the state. And then how do we end up bringing that into our own communities? I think that has to be looked at. So I'll definitely own up to not behaving at points in my life as well as I could have. Absolutely. However, If the idea is to call me a hypocrite because I won't listen to someone's opinion about defending someone who's abusive, a person in a position of power, I I don't find that to be hypocritical. I find that to be someone who wants to protect myself, protect my friends, and loved ones. And many of us have been victims and have survived attacks by police. I know many folks who have lost loved ones. (sighs) So for someone to go out of their way and to try to defend it and to play devil's advocate for folks who are abusive, I don't have the energy, uh, the time, or the patience to listen to that. I find that to be extremely problematic and harmful. So I'm open to other ideas if folks want to say, oh, hey, maybe we should defund the police. Maybe we should demilitarize the police. Let's Let's create alternatives, which I know is very difficult, easier said than done. There are a lot of other ways one can behave and suggestions one can make we can disagree about a lot of things and if there's a group or a gang of people that are trying to hurt you and your loved ones being open to hearing their side of the story isn't anything that i think helps anybody and so i was i was unfriended which is fine i'm also just been wanting to get off facebook for a while it's it's so silly it's so Stupid. And I've heard there's a new, yet another platform called Minds.com, which is hopefully a little bit more, less in line with the state. Because I've also heard that Facebook is going to start having an algorithm that's going to change the news stories and have less. I mean, who's to determine what they find is accurate, of course. So it's. I'm not mourning the loss. I am thinking about, you know, times when you meet people many years ago. And you think of all the possibilities. Oh, I'm connecting with this person, and now we can share information, and we're in each other's lives, and I wasn't necessarily close to this person. However, I do feel like there's a sense of a loss where it's like, oh, there could have been room for this person who I felt come from, came from like a very an extremely privileged, and I recognize I also have privilege, an extremely privileged position. If you're in a position where you can defend the state like that, to not hear about folks who are being harmed by it, and just to walk away, that's a very privileged place to be in. Or just to to feel like you don't care about it and that's okay. And I also thought there was another video, this was inspired because there was yet another video, and I know there's so many videos out there of police brutality, and this was taken, this happened in LA. There was a young woman who was dragged, literally dragged off a train by a cop because apparently she had her feet on a seat. And the person narrating the video had said she wasn't harming anyone. It wasn't like anyone even needed to sit there. And regardless, I think we've all, many of us have put our feet on the seat. And it's also this idea of why do cops need to come in and harass someone for doing that? There are neo-Nazis out there murdering people. There are landlords evicting people, people actually causing harm. And this person who is supposed to serve and protect the public is out there dragging a young person who just turned 18 off the train. And there was a bystander there who was awesome. And she was just like not having any of it. And she was speaking up in defense of the person. And she was also uh, arrested. And she spoke out recently. So perhaps I'll find the clip from that and play that on the show as well. And I was really just shocked about how, what would happen? What would it look like? And I also want to hold myself accountable for folks who are bystanders what can we do to stand up more when we see this happen this this injustice happen and we do see the folks who for instance I'd been arguing with who had said they it's like it's almost as if and on the original video as well th- people were watching it seemed like we were watching different videos which i think is just so fascinating that and it's like troubling as well where it's like many of us clearly identify with the person who is being accosted by the police yet other folks were saying oh the police was a person who was assaulted like the police is the person there with all the power they've got weapons they've got the state they've got so many protections they got more protections than one can imagine yet the the you know a woman like she didn't like she like uh one of them uh, she spit i believe Adam. not even adam but like around him as I could tell. I'll need to watch it again, honestly, to, to see. But that idea that somehow that is somehow worse than someone's body being physically dragged off a train by someone much larger than you. And you're, you're upset because, oh, it's just, it, it really astounds me. And I get that there's in the long run, education is key and we need to have conversations about this. And it's also so frustrating to have to bang one's head against the wall. It seems And it's also scary to know that if any of us were in this kind of situation, there are certain people that would not have our backs that would go along with the state, no matter what they were doing, even if it's unjust. And then there's the people who say, Oh, if only so-and-so were following the rules. Okay. A lot of people follow the rules. A lot of people follow the laws and they still get harassed and even killed by police. So that doesn't hold that state. That argument does not hold any water. Ugh. Ugh. so feeling very frustrated very, very frustrated. And that's been the thing too, is that it's the folks who say that they're on our side or say that they care about us and then still will defend folks who go out of their way to hurt us. And that seems to be that for the past year, I think has been some of the most frustrating things. You know, the people who say, don't punch Nazis. And you know, we're not saying everyone has to punch a Nazi. We're saying if someone feels like that's their best way of defense, don't fucking stop them and don't criticize them for doing that. It seems the time and energy that people spend trying to argue for our own self-defense is just exhausting. So, ugh, putting that out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, there have been more ice raids, and apparently 77 businesses in California were visited uh, there was a report on ABC News, and I know it's a mainstream, but they've, ICE has confirmed. And today, actually, right now, happening at 630 Sansom, which is the ICE headquarters here in San Francisco, uh, there's a vigil by uh, interfaith groups. Um, hopefully, folks can go out there. I also encourage, if anyone's listening, if anyone knows about both, to please do call in. Let us know what's happening. And what would it look like if ICE headquarters was surrounded all the time by people? We have enough people to do it, but what would that look like? I got into an. I had my, my insomnia has been back and forth a little bit, and I made the mistake of wanting to go online and just to, the, really make these comparisons between these ICE agents and Gestapo. There are people who are dying in detention centers, there are people who are being abused, there's families that are being torn apart, all because there are people in uniforms who are following orders. And a reminder to folks that the Holocaust was legal and slavery was legal and these terrible things that have killed millions of people over time, have been legal. So please don't use the, the defense, oh, well, it's, if someone's doing something illegal, then therefore they should be punished for it. Fuck that. Most laws are not moral at all. And we also need to look at who's writing these laws and who's enforcing them. <sighs> so, getting that out, feeling very frustrated, feeling very, very frustrated and recognizing that's, that's what's happening. So it's important to talk about, too. I think there are some folks who who don't recognize this is what's happening and it's, it's important for everyone just to like have conversations with people and also recognizing that the folks who are being targeted are people who are not harming people. <sighs> so that feels to be just very, very frustrating. And I wish more folks would uh, recognize. And I understand that not everyone can go out in person. It's This is more for the folks who who have the privilege to go out are able to go out or at least have conversations or at least think about what's happening and, or what would you do if uh, someone that you cared about, someone that you loved was being targeted in this way or harassed in this way. And it's difficult when so much of this energy is even just spending time recognizing that this is happening and wanting to get other folks on board with that. It's, it's, it's one thing if you can't necessarily participate. It's another thing if you're spending your time, pushing back against folks who say this is a problem. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. How much time and energy is spent having to convince people. If we had more people, if we had people, actual people power, if we had more people, we could have shut things down in a heartbeat. And instead, there are folks who would have rather look the other way. And I recognize there are so many different things happening. This is for folks out there who don't believe that there's anything that makes a difference to them. That as long as they're comfortable, they don't care about other people. I don't know how to make someone empathic. I guess storytelling is good. And I guess, again, everything in the long run, it's through education. It's through sharing one's experiences. And it's, it's heartbreaking because it's like, I can see it happening in slow motion and wanting to do something to change it and to stop it and to get more people on board. And at the same time, there are folks who are actually defending people who are causing harm. And that, to me, is just it's just heartbreaking. And also, just, a rec- just to recognize that they're going to keep on going after different groups of people. It's not like it's going to end all of a sudden with folks who are undocumented. They're going to keep on going down the list of, of folks. So th- it's a, the government's fascistic. The folks following orders are fascistic. And until people can get on board and realize that, then nothing's going to change, and more folks are going to be harmed. So it's really, really important. I really want to try to get conversations going with folks, try to make folks aware of what's happening. And, uh, just to have more one-on-one conversations with people, people, if you, if you work in a, in an office environment, I, I personally don't. However, if you do work with coworkers, have a conversation about what's happening and see if you can gauge what's happening with other folks. And, see about bringing that up and seeing about what, you, what can be done. Because as I mentioned, there are protests happening. There are actions that people can join. If you don't know what, what you can do, feel free to contact me. I, t- I tend to post a lot. And there's also in the Bay Area here, there's lots of organizations doing a lot of work. So please, by all means, see how you can connect. And also, I also believe in the diversity of tactics. So even if you can't show up to a protest in person, there are many other ways to help. Again, getting the word out, if you happen to have capital, I know it's a little. there's few and far between folks who actually have capital, but if you can help support the activists doing the work, if you have tech skills, art skills, resources, places to house people, there are so many ways to, to lend a hand and to help out. <sighs> so now that that's my opening rant, I'm going to look for some more music to play, and then we'll be back in a little bit. And there's definitely been an increase in hate crime attacks against LGBTQ folks, and folks have been talking about there definitely always has been this element of anti-queer rhetoric, and now some folks feel empowered by the people in positions of power that somehow now it's okay to do that. There was a 20-year-old gay Jewish young man who was murdered in Orange County last week. And there's an article about a new neo-Nazi group that's very much based on violence. They're all violent. However, this one's very much based on violent attacks. And they're saying they've killed eight people in five months. And those are the only ones that we know about. So, and that also doesn't even come into terms with like systemic violence and how many people die because of poverty or lack of medical care or lack of housing, lack of food. So, there's a song that Lou Reed wrote way back when. And Lou Reed, his parents sent him to electroshock therapy when he was young because he happened to be attracted to men. And we we're still hearing thoughts of thoughts or folks who support conversion therapy. And this song goes into that a little bit, and it's called Kill Your Sons. So I'm going to play this, and then we'll be back with some more news after that. Thank you.
2: psychiatrists that give you a lecture shot They said they let you live at home with mom and dad instead of mental hospitals But every time you tried to read a book you couldn't get to pay 17 Cause you forgot where you were so you couldn't even read Don't you know they're gonna kill your sons Don't you know Sons. They're gonna kill,
3: kill your sons until they run,
2: run, 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 hide away. Mommy called me on the phone. She didn't know what to do about that. You took an axe. You're married, and sister she got married on the island, and her husband takes the train. He's big and he's fat, and he doesn't even have a brain. They're gonna kill your son. Don't you know they're gonna kill, kill your son? So sad I didn't even get a letter. All of the drugs that we took, it really was lots of fun. But when they shoot you up with thalidomide, crystal smoke, you choke like a son of a gun. Don't you know they're gonna kill your sons? Don't you know they're gonna kill?
1: Welcome back to Weekly Review. we got a nice friendly visit from Amadou. I'm glad to see Amadou again here at the station. <sighs> Lots of friendly faces here. If you want to stick around or come by the station, Friday is a great day to be here following the Weekly Review is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective with Global Val, Diamond Dave, and many others. It's always a good time here at the station, and we encourage folks to come by if you want to share poetry, what's happening in the world, music, thoughts anything at all. If you've produced any art that you want to share, please do share that with folks. I want to start off, I know everything feels pretty, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for myself though, and things feel pretty (laughs) terrible, and I constantly want to leave the country. However, uh, there are some positive things that are happening. I shouldn't say that as a negative, or a question. There are positive things that are happening, and one positive thing that's happened is that well, the a lot of folks actually were against Prop 64, which was the the measure to legalize cannabis here in California. And the reason that some folks were upset about this was that it was written in a way that would not necessarily favor some of the smaller dispensary owners. And the taxes have kind of gone through the roof. And I'm all for taxes to help pay for schools and to help uh, house people. That's great. However, uh, it's a lot of folks who are actually really in the in the cannabis industry have had a lot of criticisms about. What Prop 64 will do to some of the, again, as I mentioned, some of the smaller businesses and business owners. So, one positive thing though, I think the first thing that should have happened and will thankfully happen is that folks who have been incarcerated for cannabis possession or sales uh, will be uh, released and uh, have their charges dropped. So, that's one positive thing, and that should absolutely happen everywhere. And again, this goes back to something that shouldn't have happened, shouldn't have even been a problem in the first place. I don't think a plant that grows should be illegal. However, there's so many backwards things in this world. That's just one of them. So there's a story in a few different publications. One is in the LA Times. Uh, San Francisco will wipe out thousands of marijuana convictions dating to 1975. So think about that. There are many people who lost their lives because they are sent to prison for smoking a joint or even having a joint on them, something that doesn't harm anyone. Meanwhile, of course, we can see bars... Further than the eye I can see, there are weapons that are out there and available. Weapons manufacturing is legal, yet, for a long time in this country, having possession of a plant was illegal, among so many other things that are backwards. Okay, however, now a positive side, a positive news story is when things that are terrible, that shouldn't have happened in the first place, are removed, or at least changed. So this is a positive story. From the LA Times, San Francisco will wipe out thousands of marijuana convictions dating to 1975, written by Sarah Parvini, Rong Gong Lin II, and Cindy Chang. And this came out on January 31st. San Francisco will retroactively apply California's new marijuana legalization laws to prior convictions, expunging or reducing Misdemeanors, I think they should get rid of them altogether. And felonies dating to 1975, the district attorney's office announced Wednesday, nearly 5,000 felony marijuana convictions will be reviewed, recalled, and resentenced, and more than 3,000 misdemeanors that were sentenced prior to Proposition 64's passage will be dismissed and sealed, District Attorney George Gascon said. The move will clear people's records of crimes that can be barriers to employment and housing. San Francisco's move could be the beginning of a larger movement to address old pot convictions, though it's still far from clear how many other counties will follow the famously liberal cities lead. And also the idea that San Francisco is known as liberal when a lot of folks can recognize there are certain policies that have taken place here that are not very uh, liberal. There's a uh, homelessness and poverty are criminalized here. There, uh, As of a few years ago, at least there were 27, I believe uh, anti-homelessness, homeless laws on the books. So I think criminalizing poor folks is not anything that's really thought of as to be liberal. So I'm just going to make that note. Okay. And also the housing costs. All right, moving along. Proposition 64 legalizes, among other things, the possession and purchase of up to an ounce of marijuana and allows individuals to grow up to six plants for personal use. The measure also allows people convicted of marijuana possession crimes eliminated by Proposition 64 to petition the courts to have those convictions expunged from their records as long as the person does not pose a risk to public safety. They also can petition to have some crimes reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor, including possession of more than an ounce of marijuana by a person who is 18 or older. While drug policy on the federal level is going backwards, San Francisco is once again taking the lead to undo the damage that this country's disastrous failed drug war has had on our nation and on communities of color in particular, Gascon said in a statement. Long ago, we lost our ability to distinguish the dangerous from the nuisance, and it has broken our pocketbooks, the fabric of our communities, and we are no safer for it. About 75% of San Franciscans voted to legalize marijuana, the highest margin among all California's 58 counties, but only 23 petitions for Proposition 64 reduction, dismissal, or expungement have been filed over the last year, the district attorney's office said, adding that it does not have any active marijuana uh, prosecutions. As of September, 4,885 Californians have petitioned the courts to have marijuana convictions expunged or reclassified. But many people don't know about the process, which can be difficult, according to the Drug Policy Alliance, which supported Proposition 64. So instead of waiting for the community to take action, we're taking action for the community, Gascon said. Gascon's announcement came with special resonance in the city's Castro District, a center of efforts to legalize marijuana for medicinal purposes in California. One of the biggest advocates to medical, of medical marijuana, Dennis Perone, died Saturday at 72 after a battle with cancer. Perón was considered a central figure in promoting the use of marijuana for AIDS patients, and in 1991, he co-founded the San Francisco Cannabis Buyers Club, the first public marijuana dispensary in the country. God knows how many convictions Dennis had, said San Francisco Supervisor Jeff Sheehy, who represents the Castro. Had Perone lived longer, he'd have had many of his convictions expunged. Sheehy said Gascon's plan takes the burden off those convicted of marijuana-related offenses to ask the court to review their case. People recognize that this really is not a crime, she he said. I'm totally in favor of that, Paul Greenbaum, 72, said of automatic expungement after he walked out of the apothecarium, a medical and recreational cannabis dispensary in the Castro. If it's not a crime now, what's the sense in continuing to stigmatize people? Greenbaum said he had been regularly smoking pot since he moved to San Francisco when he was 30 years old. State Senator Scott Weiner, Democrat uh, San Francisco, said there is historical meaning in San Francisco taking this step. The Castro was so deeply impacted by the AIDS epidemic. So many people were getting sick and dying, and medical cannabis was a lifeline for many people living with AIDS. A way for people to help with the side effects of the medication, to help with nausea, to help improve their appetite, Weiner said. Some noted that the district attorney's move could help people with prior convictions improve their livelihoods. Convictions really can hold you back from getting a good job, said Redding area resident Tom Savasta, 32, adding that the move would help people become more proactive members of society. A 2016 study by New Frontier Data, a data analytics firm focused on the cannabis industry, found stark racial disparities in California's marijuana-related jail population. Black, Latino, and white people all consume and all sell marijuana at similar rates, the research found. But black Californians are jailed for marijuana only offenses at much higher rates. Nearly one quarter of people jailed for those offenses are black. In the statement, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom said San Francisco's move provides a new hope and opportunities for, to Californians, primarily people of color, whose lives were long ago derailed by a costly, broken, and racially discriminatory system of marijuana criminalization. Gascon said the disparities outlined in the study weighed very heavily in his decision to review people's convictions. We know there are tremendous failures in the war on drugs, and we criminalize large sections of our community, he told the Times. The African American and Latino communities were the most harmed by this. The district attorney said he hopes other con- other counties will follow in San Francisco's footsteps. Some lawmakers have already started to pursue or support similar measures including state assemblyman Rob Bonta, Democrat from Oakland, who has proposed legalization or excuse me, who has proposed legislation that would require criminal convictions for marijuana related offenses to be automatically expunged placing the burden on the courts. Proposition 64 was opposed by many law enforcement groups in California, including the the California Police Chiefs Association, the California District Attorneys Association, the California Narcotic Officers Association, the California Peace Officers Association, and the California State Sheriff's Association. They expressed concern about the impact of legalization and questions whether the state was prepared for all the implications the law would bring. In Colorado, where voters legalize pot, prosecutors have been reluctant to erase prior marijuana convictions, said Sam Kamen, professor of marijuana law and policy at the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law. (coughs) Often, defendants have pleaded guilty to a lesser crime, and prosecutors do not want to wipe their records clean when they may have committed more severe offenses than marijuana possession, Kamen said. Eric Shevin, a Los Angeles defense attorney who specializes in marijuana law, said many people don't know they can wipe out their convictions or can't afford a lawyer to help with the process. Shevin has has already done a few hundred Proposition 64 petitions, which require preparing a motion and appearing in court several times. He said the process would go much more quickly with prosecutors taking the lead. District Attorney's certainly have the right to research their own records and dismiss these cases on their own en masse, Shevin said. I applaud this DA for taking the initiative, and I hope others will follow. Uh, Lynn reported from San Francisco, Parvini and Chang from Los Angeles. And again, you can find this at LAtimes.com. Okay, time for some more music. I'm gonna drink some water and help my voice out a little bit. And then we'll be back with some more news stories for you all.
3: Is a lot of part of the fun. Everyone here says this is part of why they come out here, it's just having fun out here.
1: Sermon. That was Peter Gabriel with Deep Forest uh, While the Earth Sleeps from the Strange Days soundtrack. Coming up next, uh, I'm going to play a video a clip. Actually, it's going to be the full video. The audio from the video. And it goes into what we are talking about before. I haven't heard this yet, so I hope to learn some things as well. Kelly Cutler from the Coalition on Homelessness posted this earlier. And as far as the attitudes towards unhoused folks here in the city goes, it's it makes the most sense to house people. However, there are sweeps that happen. There is what's called violent architecture, where there are benches that have uh, like bars in the middle. There are spikes and flat surfaces. There are benches that have been removed from places. There's the public area on Valencia, close to Dubos. That used to be just an open area, and now it's completely fenced off because some folks who happen to spend time there, other people didn't want. So now it's fenced off, and now no one can go there at all. So there's a lot of things that happen here in the city that are very much this idea of folks' ways of trying to deal with folks who are unhoused is extremely predatory, and it's, it's just harmful, very, very harmful. And they had, for a while, they also had some robots that were out there that were harassing people, like fucking robots. Seriously, we're in that kind of world? Okay, that's fucked up. And there's something recently now that now cops are going to be able to arrest people who decide they don't want services. Now, the thing is, you shouldn't be able to tell anyone what they can or can't want. And also, just to note that the line to get into shelters is over a 1,000 people long, and also shelters aren't actually even safe for some folks. So, I think people, for the most part, know what's what's best for them, and to punish them for not going along with what the state says they should do is is really harmful. Also, ticketing someone or arresting someone, how is that supposed to help? There's no rehabilitation when you get sent to jail so in the end, it's just causing more and more harm, and that's frustrating. and also that idea, oh, if they just kind of sweep the if they sweep the encampments, then people won't have it's if somehow it makes the problem disappear when that's not true at all. It makes things worse. For folks who've had to move, uh, the idea that imagine when you were moving, first of all, say you were forced to move, say you were evicted from a place and you didn't have any chance to really have any say in it. And then imagine the state takes your stuff on top of that, as they have done with these sweeps. They've taken tents, they've taken walkers, they've taken medication, they've taken personal effects like photos. Imagine that were to happen to you. So these are the same folks who are saying, oh, if you don't comply with us, then we're going to punish you. And also, a lot of these folks who are doing this work are not necessarily trained in mental health. So, oh yeah, what was my point? My point, <laughs> my point is not that things are terrible and uh, there's no hope. My point is that um, I find when I engage with some folks, it, it seems to be like we're looking at we're looking at the same situation but with very different lenses. And how can we get folks to be more empathic? And hopefully. Uh, With this speech, this is like a TED talk that Kelly Cutler from the Coalition on Homelessness posted. Um, It's perhaps a way of understanding why some folks might view people that way and how people can turn so quickly on one another. So this is called The Psychology of Evil. And um, again, I haven't heard this before, so I'm not sure exactly um, uh, what's going to be involved. So... could be some very heavy stuff here, so just giving a warning. If folks want to listen at home or listen another time, you can check it out if you go to the TED Talk. And the name of the person giving the speech is Philip Zimbardo, and that's Z-I-M-B-A-R-D-O. Again, The Psychology of Evil. So this is about uh, a little over 20 minutes, and we'll be back after that.
4: philosophers, dramatists, uh, theologians have grappled with this question for centuries. What makes people go wrong? Interestingly, I asked this question when I was a little kid. When I was a kid growing up in the South Bronx in a city ghetto in New York, I was surrounded by evil, as all kids are who grow up in a a city. And I had friends who were really good kids uh, who lived out the the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde scenario (laughs) of Robert Louis Stevenson. That is, they took drugs, got in trouble, went to jail, some got killed. Uh, and some did it without drug assistance. So when I read Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, that was in fiction, the only question is what was in the juice? And, and more importantly, That line between good and evil, which privileged people like to think is fixed and impermeable, with them on the good side and the others on the bad side, I knew that line was immovable and it was permeable. Good people could be seduced across that line and under under some rare circumstances, bad kids could recover with help, with reform, with rehabilitation. So I want to begin with this wonderful, this wonderful illusion by uh, Swiss artist M.C. Escher. If you look at it and focus on the white, what you see is a world full of angels, but let's look more deeply. And as we do, what appears is the demons, the devils in the world, and that tells us several things. One, the world is, was, will always be filled with good and evil, because good and evil is the yin and yang of the human condition. It tells me something else, if you remember. God's favorite angel was Lucifer. Apparently, Lucifer means the light, it also means the morning star in some scripture. And apparently he um, disobeyed God, and that's the ultimate disobedience to authority. And when he did, uh, uh, Michael the Archangel was sent to kick him out of heaven along with the other fallen angels. And so Lucifer descends into hell, becomes Satan, becomes the devil, the force of evil in the universe begins. Paradoxically, it was God who created hell as a place to store evil. He didn't do a good job of keeping it there, though. So this arc of the cosmic transformation of God's favorite angel into the devil, for me, sets the context for understanding human beings who are transformed from good, ordinary people into perpetrators of evil. So the looser effect, although it focuses on the negatives, the negatives that people c- can become, not the negatives that people are, uh, leads me to a psychological definition. Evil is the exercise of power, and that's the key. It's about power to intentionally harm people psychologically, to hurt people physically, to destroy people mortally or ideas, and to commit crimes against humanity. If you Google evil, a word that should truly have withered by now, you come up with 136 million hits in a third of a second. A few years ago, I'm sure all of you were shocked, as I was, with the revelation of American soldiers abusing uh, prisoners in a strange place, in a controversial war, Abu Ghraib in in Iraq. Uh, And these were men and women who were uh, putting prisons through unbelievable humiliation. I was shocked but I wasn't surprised because I had seen those same visual parallels when I was the prison superintendent of the Sanford Prison Study. Immediately the Bush administration military said what? What all administrations say when there's a scandal. Don't blame us, it's not the system, it's the few bad apples, the few rogue soldiers. My hypothesis is American soldiers are good usually. Maybe it was the barrel that was bad, but how am I going to deal with that hypothesis? I became an expert witness for one of the guards, Sergeant Chip Frederick, and in that position I had access to the dozen investigative reports, I had access to him. I could study him, ha- have him come to my home, get to know him, do psychological analysis to see was he a good apple or bad apple. And thirdly, I had access to all of the thousand pictures that these soldiers took. Uh, these pictures are of a violent or sexual nature. All of them come from the cameras of American soldiers. Because everybody has a digital camera, a cell phone camera, they took pictures of everything, more than a thousand. What I've done is I organized them to various categories. But these are by United States military police army reservists. They are not soldiers prepared for this mission at all. And it all happened in a single place, Tier 1A, on the night shift. Why? Tier 1A was the center for military intelligence. It was the interrogation hold. CIA was there, interrogators from Titan Corporation, all there. And they're getting no information about the insurgency. So they're gonna put pressure on these soldiers, military police, to cross the line, give them permission to break the will of the enemy, to prepare them for interrogation, to soften them up, to take the gloves off. Those are the euphemisms. And this is how it was interpreted. Let's go down to that dungeon.
1: in the video, they are going to show the images. <sighs> and that's what uh, is showing right now in the video.
4: Pretty horrific. Uh, that's what, that's one of the one of the visual uh, illustration of evil, and it should not have escaped you that the the reason I paired the the prisoner with his arms out with Leonardo da Vinci's ode to, to humanity is that that prisoner was mentally ill. That prisoner covered himself with shit every day and they used to have to roll him in dirt so he wouldn't stink. But the the guards ended up calling him shit boy. What was he doing in that prison rather than in some uh, mental institution? In any event, here's former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. He comes down and says, I want to know who is responsible. Who Who are the bad apples? Well, that's a bad question. You have to reframe it and ask, what is responsible? Because what could be the who of people, but it could also be the what of the situation. And obviously, that's where I'm headed. So how do psychologists go about understanding such transformations of human character if you believe that they were good soldiers before they went down to the dungeon? There are three ways. The main way is what's called dispositional. We look at what's inside of the person, the bad apples. This is the foundation of all of social sciences, the foundation of religion, the foundation of law. Social psychologists like me come along and say, yeah, people are the actors on the stage, but you'll have to be aware of what the situation is. Who are the cast of characters? What's the costume? Is there a stage director? And so we're interested in what are the external factors around the individual, the bad barrel? And social scientists stopped there and they missed the big point that I discovered when I was, became an expert with a The power is in the system. The system creates the situation that cr- corrupts the individuals. The system is the legal, political, uh, economic, cultural background. And this is where the power is of the bad barrel makers. So you want to change a person, you got to change the situation. You want to change the situation, you got to know where the power is in the system. So the Lucifer effect involves understanding human character transformations. With these three factors. And it's a dynamic interplay. What do the people bring into the situation? What does the situation bring out of them? And what is the system that, that creates and maintains that situation? So my book, The Lucer Effect, recently published, is about how do you understand how good people turn evil? And it has great, a lot of detail about what I'm gonna talk about today. So Dr. Z's Lucer Effect, although it focuses on evil, really is a celebration of the human mind's infinite capacity to make any of us kind or cruel, caring or indifferent, creative or destructive, and it makes some of us villains. And the good news story that I'm gonna hopefully come to at the end is it makes some of us heroes. This is a wonderful cartoon in the New Yorker which really summarizes my whole talk. I'm neither a good cop nor a bad cop, Jerome. Like yourself, I'm a complex amalgam of positive and negative personality traits that emerge or not depending on the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> this is a study some of you think you know about, but very few people have ever read the story. You watch you the movie. This is a Stanley Milgram, little Jewish kid from the Bronx, and he asked the question, could the Holocaust happen here now? People said, no, that's Nazi Germany, that's Hitler. You know, that's 1939. He said, yeah, but suppose Hitler asked you, would you electrocute a stranger? No way, not me, I'm a good person. He said, why don't we put you in a situation and give you a chance to see what you would do? And so what he did was, he tested a thousand ordinary people. 500 New Haven, Connecticut, 500 Bridgeport. And the ad said, psychologists want to understand memory, we want to improve people's memory, because memory is a key to success, okay? We're going to give you five bucks, four dollars for your time. We don't want college students, we want men between 20 and 50, in the latest studies they ran women, ordinary people, barbers, clerks, white-collar people. So you go down, and one of you is going to be a learner, one of you is going to be a teacher. The learner is a genial middle-aged guy. He gets tied up to the shock apparatus in another room. The learner could be the middle-aged, could be as young as 20, And one of you is told by the authority, the guy in the lab coat, your job as teacher is to give this guy material to learn. Gets it right, reward him. Gets it wrong, you press a button on the shock box. first button is 15 volts. He doesn't even feel it. That's the key. All evil starts with 15 volts. And then the next step, there's another 15 volts. The problem is, at the end of the line, it's 450 volts. And as you go along, the guy is screaming, I've got a heart condition, I'm out of here. You're a good person, you complain. Sir, who's going to be responsible if something happens to him? experiment says, don't worry, I will be responsible. Go Continue, teacher. And the question is, who would go all the way to 450 volts? I sh- you should notice here, when it gets up to 375, it says danger, severe shock. When it gets up to here, there's triple X, the pornography of power. <laughs> so Milgram has 40 psychiatrists, How many, what percent of American citizens who go to the end? They said only one percent, because that's sadistic behavior and we know, psychiatry knows only one percent of Americans are sadistic. Okay. Here's the data. They could not be more wrong. Two-thirds go all the way to 450 volts. This was just one study. Milgram did more than 16 studies. And look at this. In study 16 where you see somebody like you go all the way, 90 percent go all the way. In study five, if you see people rebel, 90% rebel. What about women? Study 13, no different than men. So Milgram is quantifying evil as the willingness of people to blindly obey authority to go all the way to 450 volts. And it's like a dial on human nature, a dial in the sense that you can make almost everybody totally obedient, down to the majority, down to none. So what are the external parallels? So all research is artificial. What's the validity in the real world? 912 American citizens committed suicide or were murdered by family and friends in Guyana jungle in 1978 because they were blindly obedient to this guy, their pastor, not the priest, their pastor, Reverend Jim Jones. He persuaded them to commit mass suicide. Uh, and so he's the modern Lucifer effect, a man of God who becomes the angel of death. Milgram's study is all about individual authority to control people. Most of the time we are in institutions. So the Stanford Prison Study is a study of the power of institutions to influence individual behavior. Interestingly, Stanley Milgram and I were in the same high school class in James Monroe in the Bronx 1954. Uh, so this study which I did with my graduate students, especially Craig Haney, we also began with, with an ad. We didn't have money so we had a cheap little ad. But we wanted college students for study of prison life. Seventy-five people volunteered, took personality tests, we did interviews, picked two dozen, most normal, most healthy, randomly assigned them to be prisoner and guard. So on day one, we knew we had good apples, I'm going to put them in a bad situation. And secondly, we know there's no difference between the boys who are going to be guards, the boys who are going to be prisoners. The kids who are going to be prisoners, they said, wait at home in the dormitories the study will begin Sunday. We didn't tell them that the city police were going to come and do realistic arrests.
5: up in front and a cop comes to the front door and knocks and says he's looking for me. So they, right there, they, you know, they took me off the door. They put my hands against the um, car. It was a real cop car. It was a real policeman. And there were real neighbors in the street who didn't know that I was, uh, this was an experiment. And there was cameras all around and neighbors all around. But they put me in the car. Then they drove me around Palo Alto. They took me to the, to the police station, the basement of the police station. Then they put me in a cell. I was the first one to be picked up, so they put me in a cell, which is just like a room with a door with bars on it. Uh, You could tell it wasn't a real jail. They locked me in there in this degrading little outfit. They were taking this experiment too seriously.
4: Here are the prisoners who are going to be dehumanized, they're going to become numbers. Here are the guards with the symbols of power and anonymity. Uh, Guards get prisoners to clean the toilet bowls out, their bare hands, to do other humiliating tasks. They strip them naked, they sexually taunt them. They begin to do degrading activities, like having them simulate sodomy. You saw simulating fellatio uh, in Soldiers in Abu Ghraib. My guards did it in five days. The stress reaction was so extreme that normal kids we've picked because they're healthy had breakdowns within 36 hours. The study ended after uh, six days because it had, was out of control. Five kids had emotional breakdowns. <sighs> Does it make a difference if warriors go to battle changing their appearance or not? Does it make a difference if they're anonymous in how they treat their victims? We know in some cultures they go to war they don't change appearance. In other cultures they paint themselves like Lord of the Flies, in some they wear masks. In many they wear soldiers are anonymous in uniform. So, with this psycho- uh, anthropologist John Watson found 23 cultures that had two bits of data: do they change their appearance? 15. Uh, do they kill, torture, mutilate? 13. If they don't change their appearance, only one of eight kills torture mutilate. The key is in the red zone. If they change their appearance, 12 of 13, that's 90%, kill torture mutilate. And that's the power of anonymity. So what are the seven social processes that grease the slippery slope of evil? Mindlessly taking the first small step, dehumanization of others, deindividuation of self, diffusion of personal responsibility, blind obedience to authority, uncritical conformity to group norms, passive tolerance of evil through inaction or indifference. And it happens when you're in a new or unfamiliar situation. Your habitual response patterns don't work, your personality and morality are disengaged. Nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer, nothing more difficult than understanding him, Dostoevsky tells us. Understanding is not excusing, psychology is not excusiology. So social psychological research reveals how ordinary good people can be transformed without the drugs. You don't need it, you just need the social psychological processes. Real world parallels, compare this with this, James Schlesinger, I'm going to have to end with this, says, psychologists have attempted to understand how and why individuals and groups who usually act humanely can sometimes act otherwise in certain circumstances. That's the looser effect. And he goes on to say, the landmark Stanford study provides a cautionary tale for all military operations. If you give people power without oversight, it's a prescription for abuse. They knew that and let that happen. So another another report, investigative report by General Fay says the system is guilty. And in this report he says it was the environment created Abu Ghraib by leadership failures that contribute to the occurrence of such abuse. And the fact that it remained undiscovered by higher authorities for a long period of time. Those abuses went on for three months. Who was watching the store? The answer is nobody. I think nobody on purpose. He gave the guards permission to do those things and they knew nobody was ever going to come down to that dungeon. So you need a paradigm shift in all these areas. The shift is away from the medical model that focuses only on the individual. And the, the shift is toward a public health model that recognizes situational and systemic vectors of disease. Bullying is a disease, prejudice is a disease, violence is a disease, and since the Inquisition, we've been dealing with problems at the individual level. And you know what? It doesn't work. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That means that line is not out there, that's a decision that you have to make, that's a personal thing. So I want to end very quickly on a positive note. Heroism as the antidote to evil. By promoting the heroic imagination, especially in our kids, in our educational system, we want kids to think I'm a hero in waiting, waiting for the right situation to come along and I will act heroically. My whole life is now going to focus away from evil that I've been in since I was a kid to understanding heroes. The Banality of heroism is odd, it's ordinary people who do heroic deeds. It's the counterpoint to Hannah Arendt's a banality of evil. Our traditional societal heroes are wrong because they, they are the exception. They organize their whole life around this. That's why we know their names. And our kids' heroes are also wrong models for them because they have supernatural talents. We want our kids to realize most heroes are everyday people and the heroic act is unusual. This is Joe Darby. He was the one that stopped those abuses you saw because when he saw those images, he turned them over to a senior investigating officer. He was a low-level private and that stopped it. Was he a hero? No, they had to put him in hiding because people wanted to kill him and then his mother and his wife. For three years, they were in hiding. This is the woman who stopped the Stanford prison study and I said it got out of control. I was a prison superintendent. I didn't notice out of control. I was totally indifferent. She came down, saw that madhouse, and said, you know what? It's terrible what you're doing to those boys. They're not prisoners, they're not guards, they're boys, and you are responsible. And I ended the study the next day. The good news is I married her the next year. <laughs> It just came to my senses, obviously. So, so situations have the power to do th- the same, but the point is it's the same situation that can, inst- that can inflame the hostile imagination in some of us that makes us perpetrators of evil, can inspire the heroic imagination in others. It's the same situation. And you're on one side or the other. Most people are guilty of the evil of inaction because your mother says, don't get involved, uh, mind your own business. And you have to say, mama, humanity is my business. So the psychology of heroism is, we're gonna end in a moment, How do we encourage children in new hero hero courses that I'm working with Matt Langdon, he has a hero workshop, to develop this heroic imagination, self-labeling, I am a hero in waiting, and teach them skills. To be a hero, you have to learn to be a deviant, because you're always going against the conformity of the group. Heroes are ordinary people whose social action is extraordinary, who act The key to heroes is two things. You have to act when other people are passive. B, you have to act sociocentrically, not egocentrically. And I want to end with a story that some of you know about Wesley Autry, New York subway hero, 50-year-old African-American construction worker. He's standing on a subway in New York. A white guy falls on the tracks. The subway train is coming. There's 75 people there. You know what? They freeze. He's got a reason not to get involved. He's black, the guy's white, and he's got two little kids. Instead, he gives his kids a stranger, jumps on the tracks, puts the guy between the tracks, lays on him, the subway goes over him. Wesley and the guy, 20 and a half inches height. The train clearance is 21 inches. A half an inch would have taken his head off. And he said, I did what anyone could do. No big deal to jump on the tracks. And the moral imperative is, I did what everyone should do. And so one day, you will be in a new situation. Take path one, you're gonna be a perpetrator of evil. Evil meaning you're gonna be Arthur Anderson. You're gonna cheat or you're gonna allow bullying. Path two, you become guilty of the evil of passive inaction. Path three, you become a hero. The point is, are we ready to take the path to celebrating ordinary heroes? waiting for the right situation to come along to put heroic imagination into action. Because it may only happen once in your life. When you pass it by, you'll always know, I could have been a hero and i let it pass me by. So the point is thinking it and then doing it. So I wanna thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's oppose the power of evil systems at home and abroad and let's focus on the positive. Advocate for respect of personal dignity, for justice and peace, which sadly our administration has not been doing. Thanks so much.
6: Saw away, son, or BBC One information is a weapon of mass destruction You're called a Caucasian or a poor Asian Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction My dad came into my room holding his hat I knew he was leaving He sat on my bed told me some facts, son I have a duty calling on me You and your sister be brave, my little soldier And don't forget all I told you You're the mister of the house, now remember this And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss Then I had to say goodbye In the morning woke mama with a kiss on each eyelid Even though I'm only a kid, certain things can't be hit Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made go, But left her in the stores untold I said, mama it'll be alright when daddy comes home Bye. Whether long-range weapon Or suicide bomb or wicked mind Is a weapon of mass destruction Whether your sorrow wave son Or BBC One misinformation information is a weapon of mass destruction You could have Caucasian or Rapport Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction Whether Halliburton, Enron or anyone Greed is a weapon of mass destruction We need to find Courage, overcome inaction, is a weapon of mass destruction Inaction, is a weapon of mass destruction Inaction, is a weapon of mass destruction My story stops here Let's be clear, this scenario is happening everywhere And you ain't going to Nirvana or Farvana. You coming right back here to live out your karma With even more drama than previously
3: Landed in St. Thomas at the end of the year, just to find the power out in the airport. Herman Maria's destruction on display beyond free. the tourist sites, and, and optimistic and people facing a harsh reality. Atlanta-based home depot, let me tell you something the people they
6: supposed to lead. I don't need people to pray and wait. For the Lord to make it all straight. There's only now i do it right. Cause I don't want your daddy. <laughs> Leave your home tonight Whether long-range weapon Or suicide bomb A wicked mind Is a weapon of mass destruction Whether you're a away son Or BBC One This information is a weapon of mass destruction You could a Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction Whether inflation or globalization Fear is a weapon of mass destruction Whether Halliburton, Enron or anyone greed it's a weapon of mass destruction. You need to find courage. overcome book action. It's a weapon of mass destruction in action. It's a weapon of mass destruction in action. It's a weapon of mass
1: destruction. And welcome back to the weekly review. That was Faithless with mass destruction. And before that, we heard the TED Talk from Philip Zimbardo. And you can check that out at TED Talk online. Ooh, and that was back from 2008, I believe, so quite a while ago and still very relevant. Coming up, have a some sad story. It's a news program, so of course there's going to be depressing stories. Uh, oof. So this is from Comment Dreams, and this has also been reported in a variety of different outlets. This is written by Jessica Corbett. Outrageous gold rush-style grab of public lands to begin in less than 48 hours. And this came out on January 31st. Conservationists, local tribe leaders, democratic legislators, and even a UN expert decry the serious attack on indigenous people's rights. Despite protests from conservationists, local tribe leaders, democratic lawmakers, and even the United Nations expert on indigenous rights, at 6 a.m. on Friday, the Trump administration will allow citizens and companies to start stalking claims on sections of the Bears, Ears, and Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monuments in Utah, so the new stakeholders can conduct hard rock mining on the formerly protected lands. It is outrageous to witness the dismantling of the Bears Ears National Monument, in what constitutes a serious attack on indigenous peoples' rights in the United States," said Victoria Tauli Corpuz, UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Tauli Corpuz uh, noted that the previous administration's decision to create the monument protected thousands of sacred sites, which are central to the preservation of regional native culture, and warned President. Ugh, Fuckers. I can't even say his name. His December decision to reduce Beers' Ears area by about 85% exposes thousands of acres of sacred lands and archaeological sites to the threats of desecration, contamination, and permanent destruction. Critics have turned to social media to denounce the modern land-run... Uh, protect bear ears, which is at at save bears bears ears, and that's b it's s a v e b e a r s e a r s on Twitter. Diminishing the size of the monument puts hundreds of archaeological and cultural sites at risk and threatens our ability to strengthen our people, practice our religion, and pass our traditional practices on to the next generation. And the hashtag is stand with bears ears, and they tweeted that on January thirtieth, along with a photo. and then there's also Monuments for All which is at Monuments for USA Uh, retweet uh, save the grand staircase and stand with bears ears proclamations dismantling Monuments for All allow for more mining and drilling claims within their original boundaries at 9 a.m. Eastern time on February 2nd it's more important than ever to speak up for America's heritage and they have a website which is monumentsforall.org forward slash action and they have a video as well um, that has over ten thousand uh, views. America's heritage, America's heritage, is under attack. Uh, on February second, the Trump administration oh, will release these public lands to mining, drilling, and energy corporations. And they have beautiful photos, uh, land that will that was cut from Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. Uh, time is running out. And they have featured that with many more photos. Tell Congress to defend our national monuments. And again, the hashtag is monuments for all. In response to the attacks on public lands and a proposal from Representative John Curtis, Republican from Utah, that purports to give management control of the remaining land to indigenous leaders, who say the measure is is tribal in name only, a group of Democratic senators has introduced a bill to fight back against Trump and Republicans in Congress. And so, Tom Udall, that's U D A L L, has tweeted: "We're introducing the hashtag." Antiquities Act of 2018 today to protect our monuments for all from the Trump administration's unprecedented and illegal attacks on our public lands. Hashtag keep it public. And Martin Heinrich has said uh, President Trump's move to eliminate 2 million acres of protections for Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante is the largest attack on public lands in American history and an insult to tribes who've worked to protect this culturally significant region. We're fighting back. Uh, hashtag Ant- Antiquities Act of 2018. In spite of widespread opposition, the Trump administration's Bureau of Land Management, which uh, their abbreviation is BLM, uh, plans to move forward with allowing stakeholders to claim plots of land on Friday and has determined the process will be governed by the General Mining Law of 1872... which covers mining for metals such as copper, gold, silver, and uranium, but not coal and petroleum. The process for staking a claim remains much as it did during the gold rush, Reuters reports. A prospector hammers four poles into the ground corresponding to the four points of a parcel that can be as big as 20 acres and attaches a written description of the claim onto one of them. A prospector then has 30 days to record the claim at the local Bureau of Land Management office. The costs of claiming are low, two hundred and twelve dollars filing fee and an annual maintenance fee of one hundred and fifty dollars. Unlike laws governing petroleum extraction, there are no environmental guidelines specific to hard rock mining and no requirement to pay a royalty. The claims provide prospectors mineral rights, but do not but not ownership of the land. Lauren Pagel, a the policy director of the nonprofit Earthworks, criticized the law as outdated, telling Reuters, it's really the last law still on the books from that Manifest Destiny era encouraging a resources free for all. And this article, this work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution share Like 3.0 license. And you can find this article, again, at commondreams.org. Ugh, this administration. Horrendous. I don't even have enough words to fully express my rage. I have a lot of rage about it. It's really Ugh Horrible. Okay. So I think it's time for a bit of another music break, and then we'll be back with some more stories. And this song is pretty aptly tiled tiled. (laughs) What time is it now? It's one twenty. And we're getting to the end. Well, we'll get to the end around one fifty. However, approaching the end and a lot of my emotions and energy tend to impact my word usage and pronunciation. It's, it's so frustrating knowing that this is happening. What would it look like if we had people defending the land? If so many people do defend the land and we still have folks out there who have no regard for what's right or what's just. All right, that was a song I was singing for the first time by a band called Doom, and the song is called Nazi Die, off uh, No Security Split from 1989. And in case you could not hear the lyrics, pretty great lyrics, racial hatred raised in youth, patriotism is no excuse, Nazi die, Nazi die, Nazi die, Nazi die, filthy prejudice, disgraceful lies, your hate and violence I despise, etc. So good to expand our, our listening and different bands here at the station. Coming up next, uh, this is a story from Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue's been doing a lot of great reporting, and I'm glad that they are around. Uh, Jewish teens protested in support of Palestinian activist Ahed Tamimi, and this came out on February 1st, written by Brittany McNamara. We want to send a message to Ahed that we are with her. And this uh, article features a photo at the, on, on top where we see activists. On January 31st, Ahed Tamimi, a young Palestinian activist turned 17 years old She did so in an Israeli jail cell where she is facing multiple charges, including attacking soldiers after a video of her slapping an Israeli soldier went viral in December 2017. Her detainment is part of an ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine, dating back nearly a century, in which Palestinians object to Israelis' occupying land they believe they have a historical right to, and Israelis say they have a legal and religious claim to the occupied land. She was reportedly one of over more than 300 Palestinian youths who are being detained by Israeli forces. On Ahead's birthday, young people turned out and drove to support her. In protest of the detentions, Jewish high school students across the United States took to the streets on January 31st, showing solidarity with Ahed and their Palestinian counterparts. This, according to If Not Now, the organization through which the protest happened, is the first time young Jewish Americans organized for Palestinians of their own age. Ariella, one of the teens leading the action on Wednesday tells Teen Vogue that the protest proves American Jewish teenagers want peace for everyone, including Palestinians. There's a change happening in our community, and our generation is at the forefront of it, ready to speak up about the injustice of the Israeli occupation, Ariel tells Teen Vogue. Jewish American teens are applying the Jewish values we learned in Hebrew school and around Shabbat dinner tables. We must respect, protect, and honor not only Jews, but Palestinians as well. We want to send a message to Ached that we are with her, and we are inspired by her, and that we are fighting for her freedom. Israelis occupy parts of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, areas that Palestinians claim a historical right to. While Israel doesn't recognize Palestine as a nation, nor do its allies, according to the United States and asserts its settlements are legal, Palestinians disagree, hence the ongoing often violent conflict. If not now is a group of young American Jews organizing against Israel's occupation of Palestine. Protests in support of Ahed broke out in Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, and the Bay Area on January 31st. If Not Now was in a press set in a press release. On top of the demonstrations, the organization gathered nearly 1,000 birthday messages to send to Ahed in detention. In addition to sending support to Ahed and other young Palestinians through the demonstrations, Ariella says she hopes other young Jewish people will better understand how Palestinian youths are treated. I want people to know that the young Jewish people in the streets are the moral voice of our community, that we will stand up for what is right and transform our community in the process, she says. We love our community, and we will be the generation to end the American Jewish community support for the occupation. Awesome. I hope that goes out loud and clear to many folks out there. And I've also heard of folks, um, there's a person in Boston, and many folks out there, rabbinical folks, going out there to uh, to the Israeli consulate because oh, there's been some hor- other horrific things happening, and that is that um, African refugees in Israel have been being deported, and uh, it's, I want to pull up the, I'll need to pull up the article later just to get all the full details of it. It's just been really horrific, and they've been, it's similar to America, where they've been uh, encouraging uh, folks to turn people in, and it's really horrific. So, um, just a shout out to all folks, um, Jewish Americans, to go out to the Israeli consulate and to let them know that this is not okay, this is not acceptable. (sighs) (sighs) Okay. I'm now on a there's no real segue here to make this at all amenable. However, uh, something positive, and I guess people speaking up is positive, and again, it's it's frustrating when the positive news stories are people just, it, it happens when people take action about something terrible that's happening. However, Something a little bit uh, less, I, it's still positive. I, I won't say too much more about this. Canada makes its national anthem gender neutral. I personally am not a fan of national anthems. However, I am a fan of making things gender neutral. And this is written by Jeff Taylor. And this is from lgbtqnation.com on February 1st. And I know that there's plenty of problematic things about Justin Trudeau. So we'll, we'll, thats I'm definitely acknowledging that. Canada has changed the lyrics to its national anthem to make it gender neutral after a 30-year battle against conservative opposition. The Senate voted on Wednesday to change the words, in all thy sons' command, to in all of us' command in O Canada. That's not that big of a deal, folks. I'm glad this happened. Since O Canada was officially made the country's anthem in 1980, there have been 12 bills that have attempted to make the English lyrics gender neutral. This latest bill was crafted in 2016 and had stalled in the Senate after passage in the House due to conservative opposition. And then Trudeau was happy about this. I'm not going to read his tweet. Conservative senators upset that the debate has been ended. Oh, poor babies. After 18 months of debate and a vote boycotted the vote, the bill passed easily on a voice vote. I'm very, very happy. There's been 30 years plus of activity trying to make our national anthem Uh, This important thing about our country, inclusive of all of us, said Independent Ontario Senator Francis Lankin, who sponsored the bill. This may be small, it's about two words, and it's huge. We can now sing it with pride, knowing the law will support us in terms of language. I'm proud to be part of the group that made this happen. The bill will become law following royal assent by the Governor General. (laughs) Retired conservative Senator... Nancy Ruth put forward similar legislation in 2010 and was on hand to witness its passage on Wednesday. I'm feeling excited and thrilled, and the independents are fabulous, she said. She declined to comment on the conservative senator's boycotting the vote. The anthem was written by Robert Stanley Weir in 1908, and the lyrics have been updated in the past, including the addition of the gendered language by Weir after World War I. He changed, "'Thou dost in us command' to, "'In all thy sons command.'" The original French version does not include gendered language. Imagine that. So there's another story for you. And with another story, I'm gonna take another break. This is another song I'm hearing for the first time by a band called Leftover Crack. That's okay. However, the name of the song is called Nazi White Trash. So here's some here's some there's some here's some music for you. that song before again that's a band called Leftover Crack song called Nazi White Trash and they have another song called Gay Root Boys Unite that I think I will have to play on the show a little bit later so I'm always grateful to hear new music makes things more interesting that way speaking of Nazi White Trash (sighs) Identity Europa uh, uh, fucking gross fuckers I'm again running out of language to use they hung a banger a banger they hung a banner over Treasure Island, that was like, warning, it was just fucking gross. I'm going to read an article about it. That's And thankfully, the banner was removed. But they're, they feel empowered given the current situation, and they need to be stopped, and they're terrible. That's my summation of it. And It's Going Down, which is like an anarchist news site has a story about this. And it was also reported on mainstream news outlets as well. And here we're going to talk about the uh, article from It's Going Down, and it's written by an anonymous contributor, and it came out February 1st. Bay Area, no sanctuary, no sanctuary, no sanctuary for white nationalists. And they have a video, which um, it's more visual, so there's not much audio, and so it's not worth playing, however, i going to read the article. The following video and report was sent to us by anti-fascists in the Bay Area, who made quick work of an anti-immigrant banner put up by the neo-Nazi group Identity Europa, i.e. and its revolving door of leaders, were central to the organizing of a murderous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, and have been active in Northern California since 2016. Bay Area anti-fascists captured a banner that said, quote, that said, the white nationalist group Identity Europa uh, had hung from the Yerba Buena tunnel heading into San Francisco. As a strike towards the defeat of our enemies, we tore down the banner. We tore down the banner and put up in the early hours of the morning, which attempted to, quote, unquote, warn commuters of, quote, unquote, dangerous immigrants and refugees and spread hate and the fear of immigrants who call San Francisco their home. And they have a video here. Uh, we refuse to settle between the terror of white fanatics like Dylan Roof, James Fields, and Jeremy Christian, or their ideolo- ide- ideologues like Identity Europa. We will not accept the sanctuary state of Jerry Brown, nor continued ICE raids of Tr- or Trump's disastrous wall. We will take our collective liberation and nothing less. Sanctuary is not given. It is carved out of everyone's desire to be safe and free." and for that desire to be respected. Much like the banner removed and burned, we will take it upon ourselves to build a new world from the ashes of theirs. There is no sanctuary in the Bay for alt-right white nationalists or fascists of any stripe. No borders, no nations. Fuck deportations. And that was signed by San Francisco Bay Area anti-fascists. So, and there's a beautiful video of them burning that banner. So, great. I was glad that that was removed so quickly. All right. We've got about 15 minutes left, lots of news articles to get to. I'll probably read the headlines of a few, and you can uh, check out with more detail. So the Chronicle of Higher Education, there's an article by Emma Kerr. White supremacists are targeting college campuses like never before, and this came out on February 1st. We've heard a lot about the, um, the, um, uh, them trying to organize s- speeches under the, under the guise of free speech, even though they're targeting people. And I'll read a little bit about this of this article. White supremacist propaganda at colleges increased by 258% from the fall of 2016 to the fall of 2017, affecting 216 campuses across the nation, according to a study released on Thursday by the Anti-Defamation League. For for just the fall 2017 semester, the organization found 147 incidents of white supremacist flyers, stickers, banners, or posters on campuses, up from 41 reported during the fall 2016 supe- semester. In the past year, the group said 346 incidents have been reported in all at colleges in 44 states and Washington, D.C., from community colleges to the Ivy League. White supremacists are targeting college campuses like never before, the Anti-Defamation League's chief executive, Jonathan Greenblatt, said in a news release. They see campuses as a fertile recruiting ground, as evident by the unprecedented volume of propagandist activity designed to recruit young people to support their vile ideology. Large public colleges in California and Texas saw the most incidents of white supremacist propaganda in the last year. That's in part because white supremacist groups are most concentrated in those areas, said Carla Hill, an investigative researcher at the League Center on Extremism, in an interview. The data were compiled from news media reports, complaints by students, or the institutions themselves, extremist sources that have been verified by a secondary source and police reports. After the November 2016 elections, colleges uh, saw a wide widely re- reported spike in white supremacist flyer posting and hate-inspired incidents. Hill said she started noticing a pattern of white supremacist groups targeting colleges in a coordinated and widespread way in early 2016 and began keeping records of the instances in the fall of 2016. She'd previously seen other kinds of white supremacist propaganda on campuses, like handing out CDs of hate music, but nothing before to match the magnitude of the 2016 surge. Since then, she had has noticed a continued sharp increase in incidents with propaganda rampant on campuses. If one college has it, they shouldn't feel like a minority, she said. There's literally hundreds of schools that have been touched by this, and I wouldn't take it as a my school is a, a school of hate. White supremacist groups like Identity Europa, Patriot Front, and Vanguard America are some of the more notable one- that are taking aim at colleges. Identity Europa is responsible for nearly half of the reported incidents of propaganda, The numbers in the study do not include other kinds of white supremacist propaganda, such as writings on sidewalks and chalkboards, faxes, and public speaking engagements by firebrand white nationalists like Richard B. Spencer. Over the past year, the Anti-Defamation League saw declines in white supremacist propaganda only during the summer and other periods of college vacations. Hill said white supremacists aim to have the most impact with, uh, with their propaganda, hoping to attract news media attention and even bragging about the postings on social media, Sometimes the groups seem to be competing with one another, Hill said. The most interesting thing is the effort these groups and individuals doing this have gone to, to market it, she said. It has a lot of effects. It's put in the paper there. People seeing it has an effect. The campus having to denounce it. The media reporting on it gets more attention. The proof of them doing it. The images of the material on campus. The people complaining about it. It's multi-purpose. It creates more propaganda for them to use for their cause. The only states with no reported incidents last year were Alaska, Hawaii, Louisiana, Maine, New Hampshire, and West Virginia, according to the data. The Anti-Defamation League declined to release a list breaking down the number of incidents of incidents by institution. So there's definitely, here in the Bay Area, I've heard of plenty of reports from Cal, Berkeley, and when Milo was here and tried to speak at Berkeley as well as at UC Davis, Ugh. And I, I do want to say there are students organizing on the opposition. There were reports of folks at Michigan where Richard Spencer was trying to speak and students pushing against that happening. So I'm hoping that there are some young folks out there who are, and I know that there are. So I want to just send some solidarity, solidarity out to the young folks out there organizing against this. Ugh. Ugh. And I think it's also just really important just to keep track and to acknowledge that this is happening. Uh, there's a lot of folks who will gaslight, say, oh, this isn't happening, or it's not that bad, and just to record events that are happening as evidence that it, it is happening. So, ugh, very, very frightening. Okay, so it's 1.40. got a few more stories. We'll get to... I'll, Power through as many as possible. Coming up next at 2 p.m. is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective at 3 p.m. If you're interested in having a show here at Mutiny Radio, there are plenty of slots available. Please do check out mutinyradio.fm. You can contact uh, Pam, who's a station director, and check in about available slots. We also are available for Saturday night rentals if you'd like to have a show here. You have a two-hour slot. Um, you pay a, a, a part of the door goes to rent the rental fee, and you get to have this live broadcast. You have a live show. It gets recorded. Um, it's pretty awesome. Most things uh, aside from alcohol are allowed here. It's it's non, it's non uncensored. <laughs> it's uncensored here, so you can do whatever you like. Music, comedy, spoken word. We're open to it. Um, it's great to have as many voices as possible here. So please do. Uh, check in about that. There's also the comedy festival, which is happening in March. So please also check out mutinyradio.fm for the lineup for that as well. And that's being sponsored by Spark Dispensary. Speaking of sponsorship, if you'd like to help sponsor this show, I would greatly appreciate it to help cover the cost of rentals. We have a couple individuals who helped uh, in January to join on and that's Melissa and Nate. So thank you so much for that and you can check out the Patreon account, which is at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. If folks can donate a dollar a month, that would be very helpful. And upwards, if you're able to, that would be great. Whew. Okay. So moving along, I'm going to get to the next few stories, and then we will call it call it a night. It feels like I'm ready for bed already, and it's not even 2 p.m., but that's, that's where we're at when we push forward and the the days I don't have guests, uh, direct guests on the show. It's uh, whew, whew, lots going on. So from the New York Post, which I know is not necessarily the most reputable news source, however, as they do report some items that are not elsewhere. Uh, college compiles first ever index of slaves and their owners in New York. And this is written by Gabrielle Von Rouge. And this came out on February 1st. And John Jay, The Big Apple Apple College has compiled the first-ever index of slaves and their owners in New York State, dating back to early as 1525. John Jay College of Criminal Justice, part of the City University of New York, gathered 35,000 records and put them in a publicly searchable database to deepen understanding of slavery in New York. This vast public database will serve as an important research tool that will support information-based scholarship on slavery in New York and across the nation, Carol V. Mason, president of John Jay College, said in a statement. The launch of this index marks a significant contribution to understanding and remembering the country's History of Slavery and Advances the College's mission of educating for justice. The index, which includes records that end around the Civil War, was developed and administered by John Jay professors Ned Benton and Judy Lynn Peters with a team of graduate students in the Master of Public Administration program. The index includes census records, slave trade transactions, cemetery records, birth certificates, newspaper articles, excuse me, new- newspaper accounts, and other records. Other sources include records from the New York state senators who owned slaves from in in 1790 and 1800, data from almost 200 underground railroad fugitives who came to New York after escaping slavery in the South, and 550 advertisements that sought the capture and return of enslaved New Yorkers. John Jay said information pertaining to enslaved New Yorkers has been largely disconnected and difficult to access they said the database allows for searches that combine records from different sources, from different sources, which increases the chances of a match. The website is free, open to the public, and includes instructions on how to use it. Wow. So again, um, you can check this out. Uh, the article is on New York Post, and this is at the John Jay uh, College of Criminal Justice in New York City. And yes, they also provide the link to... Uh, it's nyslavery.commons.gc.cuny.edu, and all this is contained in the article as well. All right, moving along. And of course, we never get to all of the articles here, but we'll do our best. Um, Next up, from BuzzFeed. Okay, it's BuzzFeed, I know. But important article. Went to learn about boundaries and consent. Listen to sex workers. Opinion: Their work demands the constant creation and affirmation of sexual limits in a professional setting, something most people clearly struggle with. And this was written by Melissa Brodo, and this came out on February 1st. Uh, There's a group of people who are uniquely qualified to lead the rollicking global conversation about sexism, sexuality, privilege, and power that is being fueled by daily reports of sexual assault by powerful men. These are people who know more about the negotiation of sexual boundaries than anyone else on the planet. And right now they are barely being listened to as an attorney. I've been representing and advocating for sex workers for over 15 years. Their working lives are spent grappling with how to safely satiate sexual desires in a puritanical society that tells us that sex is mostly bad and shameful. Their labor demands the constant creation and affirmation of sexual limits in a professional setting, something most people clearly struggle with when it's done right. "'Sex work is a straightforward and consensual form of sexual interaction in a deeply uneven world. Money is power, sex is power, and the two can be consensually exchanged for mutual benefit in clear and honest ways. The entire sexual self can be acknowledged, seen, and enjoyed. Not all sexual labor is empowering or even consensual. I've represented dozens of survivors of human trafficking who have suffered extreme abuse at the hands of traffickers, police, and, to a lesser extent, clients.' This is labor exploitation, and yet again, survivors of this horrific abuse know more than most about the importance of consent and the creation of boundaries, and about the pathologies of men inclined to disregard these things. It's worth noting that, as you're reading this article, a veteran sex worker is at the heart of a presidential scandal. If you pay close attention to the words of Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels, as she describes her sexual relationship with uh, President Trump, one in which she clearly never sought his affection or romance, and for which she eventually got recognition and payment, It gives an insight into Trump's character that few others were talking about back in 2011 when she gave her tell-all interview. Saturday Night Live recently had a troubling take on Ms. Clifford, with Cecily Strong playing a campy Stormy Daniels, saying she was the hero we deserve right now, the joke being that we might be saved by women who sell sex for a living. But SNL got it all wrong. She is not the hero we deserve, but the hero we may need, and her SNL portrayal underpins the mainstream liberal discomfort with overt female sexuality and sex workers in particular. After Ms. Clifford's story was made public, Trump's opponents began searching for other sex workers who might have stories of their own, and even used the AVN Adult Entertainment Awards last week in Las Vegas as a place to uncover further dirt on the president. Who knows what they might discover. It says a lot about our society that people on the front lines of negotiating sexual boundaries are criminalized, stigmatized, and shamed, with their work seen as dirty, delinquent, and inherently wrong. This speaks to the larger issues at hand. Sexuality, in and of itself, is not a bad or fearful human experience. It is deeply and fundamentally human, instinctual, and necessary for our survival. Where we go wrong is through imposing stigma and criminalization onto sex. This is one of the factors that leads to people behaving badly. When we are at odds with our fundamental human instincts, inevitably, there is a conflict. Sex workers know all about this, too. Many people are forced to stay in abusive situations through the cultural stigma, shame, criminalization, systemic disempowerment, and alienation from families that can come with their sexual labor. In some cases, ill-intentioned men and women put them in these positions to keep them there, and keep them there. But our puritanical and punishing society provides a fertile ground for those seeking to exploit vulnerable women. Feminists understand that rape is not about sex, it's about power. But this particular type of power utilizes and manipulates our society's broken approach to sex. And if we could just acknowledge individuals conflicting and perhaps even unsettling sexual needs, we could, begin to, we could begin to more functionally and healthily deal with them. What might that look like? First, a removal of criminal penalties from all consensual adult sexual behavior. Criminal consequences for consensual sex is a fundamentally unhealthy, harmful, and punitive concept that should be abandoned. Second, we need to grapple with the uncomfortable and potentially conflicting sexual needs people may have, and people need to know how to safely, progressively, and openly acknowledge and act upon them. Sexual discomfort, confusion, and insecurity are part of the visceral human experience. It is not inherently bad or violating, although it certainly can be. Third, we need to reframe our approach to sexuality to not only minimize abuse, uh, but also support and empower victims to come forward. We must let go of the, the notion of a perfect victim or a completely evil perpetrator. Everyone's lives and histories are complex, and that complexity is what makes us imperfectly human. How can we all take ownership and control of our bodies, our sexuality, and our sex lives in a positive and empowering way, separating, our, separ- separating out abusive, power-driven assault from healthy sexuality?" Sex workers deal with these questions every day. It's time to listen to them as we search for the answers. And that was written by Melissa Sontag-Bruto, JD, MPH, co-executive director of the SOAR Institute, and that's S-O-A-R, and has worked with sex workers and survivors of human trafficking for over 15 years as an activist and attorney. Thank you for that article. All right, and thank you all for listening. We're at the 150 mark, which means it's time to say goodbye for the day. Please do stay tuned, because as I mentioned previously, Women's Magazine with Global Vowels next, followed by the Common Thread Collective. There are so many shows here at Mutiny Radio. If you go to mutinyradio.fm, you can check out our schedule. There's shows here every day of the week. There's music, comedy, news, uh, talk shows, advice shows, uh, Oh, so much. I'm missing out on a lot and there's so much more. And if you are interested in having a show here, please do contact us. We'd love to have your voice here. Cool. So I'm going to end on a song. One of my favorites, uh, the guillotine by the coup. And this is in celebration of the upcoming film. Sorry to bother you by boots. Riley being picked up. It was a hit at Sundance and it's been picked up for distribution. I'm really excited. I worked, uh, briefly on this show as an extra, uh, this film as an extra and it was a really awesome set to be on. And it's one of the few times I've been, um, member or i've been on a, a set where i'm just so incredibly excited to to see this this product i'm really excited to see this film so this comes from uh the coup which is the uh one of the bands that boots rally is in and it's called the guillotine and hopefully this will provide some inspiration for folks uh taking to the streets and uh fighting back have a great week everyone and we'll be back um i might not be in there next week um however there will be a show so stay tuned and have a great week
7: The to offer. Run!
0: Comics. It's
3: a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pam deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m.